Welcome, welcome everybody to the Hockey Think Tank podcast brought to you by the HockeyThinkTank.com, a website for all players, parents, and coaches to go to get a little bit of education and a little bit of inspiration regarding the greatest game on the planet. What an episode we have for you guys here today. We have Stanley Cup champion Colin Fraser coming on the podcast. A little bit about his background. Colin grew up in the beautiful province of British Columbia before going on to play his junior hockey career in Red Deer for the Rebels and Brent Sutter, who is obviously a legendary coach. Uh, Colin won a Canadian World Junior Gold Medal for Team Canada. He is a Stanley Cup winner for the Los Angeles Kings and the Chicago Blackhawks. He played for parts of nine NHL seasons with the Blackhawks, the Oilers, the Kings, and the Blues, known as one of the best teammates in the NHL. Awesome, awesome guy. We're so thrilled to have him on the podcast. And why don't we bring on, before we bring on Colin, let's take Jeff Lavecchio, who is trying very hard to make me laugh with emojis right now. Jeff, what's going on in St. Louis today, buddy? What's up, brother? You kept that together pretty well there. I was trying uh, very hard not to look at the screen as you were being a dink. <laughs> great, great peripheral vision because I didn't think you were looking at me. Nicely done. Uh, yeah, man, I'm having a great day. Uh, had a great workout. Had in uh, one of my NHL clients' dads now trains with me uh, in the off season here or during the season when all my my most of my business, so most of my guys are playing on their teams in college or pro or junior or whatever. Um, and I just have a ball with these guys. They're all like late forties, early fifties, absolute beauties, just such a fun time training a different population than I'm used to. Um, so I just came from that. So that was, that was really fun. By the uh, way, so your NHL client is Trent Frederick who plays for the Boston Bruins and his dad made headlines last year. Remember when he played in his first NHL game, he got into a fight and then they actually had the camera on his dad and he was like hooting and he was like so pumped. Do you remember that? Nuts. He was going nuts, dude. Bob, Bob Frederick, Mr. Frederick is an absolute beauty. And it's him and his brother-in-laws and one of their other friends who come and train with me. And they are the best, man. We have such a good time working together. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty yeah, cool. so I'm in a good mood after this podcast here, going to Detroit uh, with my team, the U16 AAA Blues, for some games over the weekend. So hopefully I'll get to see uh, Brandon Arado, who we've had on the podcast quite a bit, works for the Red Wings and an owner in TPH. And hopefully I'll get to see Brian Gallivan, who we also had on the podcast, Team USA's NTDP strength coach. I uh, want to get in to see him, maybe get a workout with him, get a little meaty, have some fun. Uh, so I'm excited for this weekend. <laughs> Sounds like a good weekend, man. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like that. Well, uh, let's bring it on over to, uh, or let's not bring it on over, but let's talk about our podcast that we had today with Colin Frazier because, dude, this guy is unreal. What like, a what a beauty. I know that word is thrown around by non-hockey, hockey people all the time. Like, oh, you're a beauty. Man. But like, what other word can you use to describe Colin Frazier other than beauty? Like, he just seems like the quintessential, unbelievable locker room guy, perfect teammate, like, just seems like a guy that I would have loved to have had a chance to play with. Yeah, for sure. And he's a guy that you can, yeah, like you can totally tell he made a career for himself, obviously from being a very good hockey player. But I think it, it would be a very good argument to say that he had such a long career because he was an awesome teammate as well. Like not afraid to do all the little things, not afraid to know what the team needs and be that guy for the team when they needed something like just the conversation with him was, was unreal. And it really gives you a window into like the, the hockey culture at the highest levels, which I think is, you know, like culture is everything 
in, in anything, in business and sports and family and all that kind of stuff. And you need culture guys on your team to be successful. And it's, you know, it's no secret and it's no surprise that a guy like that was able to win a couple Stanley Cups with a couple different teams based upon the kind of guy that he was. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 no secret. And it, it's just like you said, culture is everything. Like, everything. You know, I'm a small business owner. You are as well. Like, everything goes off of culture. It's culture first. It runs downhill. And when you have guys like him in the locker room that are there to not, not police itself, but you got to know that like, if you see a guy like him working his bag off, eating pucks, like doing everything he can, bleeding in the locker room for the boys, that makes those skilled guys want to go out there in the power play and score more. And I think Colin even alluded to that on the podcast. Like, yeah, I go out there and I'll eat pucks and I'll lay down for the team and I'll risk my body. Well, now my skill guys are seeing that and they want to go out there and do what their job is, which is score goals and make plays and do things like that even more because he's doing his job, which is, you know, the, the physically quote unquote, physically hard stuff. So, I mean, it just, it makes so much sense. He's a beauty. Yeah. I got to thinking about it at some point too, and I didn't actually write it down, but maybe I should have, but I feel like for a championship hockey team, you need certain personalities and you need certain roles on your team. If that makes any sense. Like, let's talk about the culture kind of like off the ice almost like you need a guy who's an older veteran who's going to lay down the law, right? Like a guy like Chara who like, you're not going to you're not going to cross that guy. You know, you need like a happy-go-lucky younger guy who has an infectious personality when maybe times are a little bit tough. He comes in the room and kind of gets the guys going. You need like a two or three kind of like kind of Colin Frazier type guys who will do anything for the team. And everybody knows that on and off the ice, they're typically the same, right? They're the guys who will on the ice eat pucks and all that kind of stuff. But they're also guys who like off the ice, if you need to get a ride or your car breaks down or whatever it may be, like he's asking guys to go to lunch after practice, yeah. builds team unity and exactly. bonding. Like for sure. He's you the guy need, who's doing that. But that's another thing. You need a social coordinator. Like you need a guy that's going to round the guys up like let's say you're on a road trip and you're in Detroit like you said you're on a road trip and you're in Detroit you're playing playing the Red Wings the next day like you need a guy that's going to wrangle everybody so there's like maybe 14 guys out to dinner instead of six different dinners going on with um, you know two or three different guys like you need all those kinds of roles and personalities all throughout the locker room i mean you also you need your skill guy that's a little bit arrogant (laughs) it's kind of kind of uh you know kind of arrogant but everybody loves because he does his thing and he's still a good team guy but he gets on your nerves every once in a while like every championship team i feel like has certain guys like that within a room you know what i mean yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I had a, a conversation that is obviously a regression to this with one of my midget guys um, this weekend when we had a workout together. And he went to uh, a junior camp and he scored a goal in every single game. And he's like a very hard worker, like third line guy, you know, maybe second line, like just plays like a north south game, like very intense, awesome kid, one of the hardest workers I've ever worked with. And he didn't make the all star game in NAHL. Uh, tryout. And I was like, well, you know, you got to think about when you're going to trial for teams next year, like what is their personnel they're bringing back? I was like, what if they already have two of you, you know, a third, fourth line left winger that's going to penalty kill and plays a straight line game and will put up, you know, five to 10 goals. If they have a guy returning, 
maybe you go to a team where they're losing that guy. So for the guys like trying to always talk to, to, to our listeners and what they want to hear, when you're going to try out for junior teams and parents, you got to think about this too and have your kids think about it. Look at who's leaving, who's returning, things like that. Because like Tope said, when coaches and GMs are putting teams together, it's not just like, who can score the most goals? We need 20 goal scorers. That team's not going to win. They're going to have no one to play defense, no Colin Frazier's to eat pucks, nobody to get the puck deep at the end of the game. So you need to think about those things, kids and parents, when you're going for tryouts and, and picking a college even. How many guys are returning? How many guys are leaving? You need to look at those things. Where would I fit in this team? Where would my on-ice skills and my character and personality fit in with the team? So just like trying a teaching point, think about that stuff too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's a, the dynamics of putting a locker room together and putting a culture together are fascinating, isn't it? Like that's, it, I think that's one of the most fascinating parts about coaching is is fitting those personality pieces together to form a culture that unites with kind of like your mission and vision as well. And that's not just for sports; that's for you know for anything involving a team. And uh, it's it's so hard because personalities are all different. It's very very hard to manage a lot of different personalities and you need a lot of different personalities to to have a successful team you can't like you said you can't have just the same kind of role on the ice but you can't have like 25 stone-faced guys that just want to work hard all the time and just put their head down and work like you need their different personalities too um like i said you need a, a music guy you need a great DJ in the locker room, somebody who knows what the boys needs to put the music on at certain times during a year. I mean, there's so many different little kind of off-ice roles that are just really important to building that culture. Yeah, that reminds me. I can't remember what podcast we talked about it on, but it was a while ago, and you had talked about how much thought you put into uh, the locker room seats when you were at Cornell, like yeah. how much you as the coaching staff thought, well, like, let's put this guy next to this guy because they'll balance each other out or this or that, or this guy's going to teach him leadership. I was like, wow. Like I've obviously thought about that when I was a player. Oh, I would think like maybe we should have had this guy sitting with him, but like to hear you as a coach talk about how much detail and thought went into that process, I thought was really cool. And that's going to help build your culture. Yeah. Yeah. And building culture, it's very fun, but it's very hard and it takes a lot of work. Like yep. you, you have to be mindful. You have to be prepared um, and plan for things to, to be able to do it. And then a lot of it too is just recruiting. I mean, who's on the bus? Well, what types of people are you putting on your bus that's going to get you to where you want to go? And uh, I think the teams that put the time and effort into that culture piece, not just in formulating a culture there, but also in taking the time to pick the right people to get there too. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's really hard, but it's really, really important. Yeah, totally. Very cool. Yeah. And, uh, so, and I, I mean, Colin, you can just tell from, from hearing him talk, he was just an unreal, unreal team guy. And, uh, we'll leave that for the podcast. But another thing that we actually talked about too, that I think is a really good talking point for us before we get over to Colin actually is, uh, he talked very glowingly about playing for Brent and Daryl Sutter. And he played for Brent uh, in Red Deer in the WHL, uh, and he also played for Daryl, his brother, uh, when he won a na- uh, not a national championship, when he won a Stanley Cup with uh, with the Kings. And both those guys are known as like tough coaches, you know, like real tough coaches, no nonsense, discipline, accountable, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's very interesting because I would agree with him. I think you would too. Like. I think the best coaches that got the most out of me were those types of coaches, guys that kind of didn't give you a lot of wiggle room and really, really held your feet to the fire and held you accountable. And uh, I feel like coaching today is going 
almost too far away from that where people talk about the player's coach so glowingly. It's almost like they talk about it where, you know, it's not like they don't hold people accountable, but so much so that you almost forget about the attention to detail, discipline, toughness that you need as a coach to be successful. So it was really cool to hear him talk about the Sutters and, and how they got the most out of them kind of being that old school type way. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, you, you got to pee slap every once in a while. Like every now and then, you can't let your players walk all over you. Uh, there is a fine line, I think. I mean, you got to think about who's in the locker room, like you said, what's but your culture. On, I'll, dis- I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit, though, because I don't think it's so much the pee slap every once in a while. I think it's just that kind of like every day holding people to a high standard. And like if you come not ready to work on a certain day, like you're going to hear about it. Like I feel like it's one of those things where you can't wait until it gets to be such a problem that you got a pee slap. I love how we're saying that, you know, you have to to hold, you have to hold your players to that high of a standard every day because players, I mean, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Who wants it hard? Like who, who naturally is going to be like, I want to be challenged more. Like it's the human nature just isn't, isn't like that. So that's why you need, if it was like that, you wouldn't need coaches. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, I, I, I I agree. But like, at the same time, I feel like, I think we're talking about the same thing, but there needs to be a line there. Like I, I feel like when we were growing up and we've talked about this, like the coaches that held you accountable, the, there's different ways of doing it. Like we've talked about a coach I played for, you know, in juniors who like his way of holding you accountable was like demeaning you kind of, you know, and he was doing it from a place of wanting to make you better. But like, it was like, it's my, it's my way or the highway. And it's like, I'm going to rip on you in front of everyone and kind of beat you down to make you fall in line. I think there's, I personally think that you don't need to do that. I mean, maybe with some personalities you do, like we always talk about coaching. I believe that you need to treat each individual to the best of whatever you can, however you can get the most out of that individual while at the same time treating the team in one unified way. But like maybe like, you know, behind closed doors, having meetings with guys saying like, Hey, you know, one guy, you got to pump his tires. One guy, you got to yell at one guy, you do this, do that. But holding, holding the, the team accountable, I think there's a way to do it where it's not, you know, demeaning and looking down on them and that kind of thing. I, I I just think there's a better way than what was done when we were kids. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why this conversation is very important because it's not like, it's not one way or the other. You're not either an old school coach or a player's coach. Right. You know what I mean? And I feel like that's the way people talk about it all the time Yeah, because you need to have both. Like people think about the player's coach as being really good at relationships and, you know, old school coaches as not doing that. But there's a lot of old school coaches who are really good at building relationships. Maybe they did it in different ways, but the kids thought knew that they cared about them. The players knew that they worked hard and all that kind of stuff. So like you have to find the best of both worlds, I feel like. The the quote unquote new school players coach relationships type stuff. But also like you gotta have a backbone as a coach and you gotta be, you know, unflinching in holding people to high standards um, as well. And so it's not one or the other. It's, it's both. And I think it was a really cool discussion with Colin about like the setters and how they kind of accomplished that. I wish I would have asked him. I just thought of this, like I, you know, I wish I would ask him, well, what was the assistant coach like on those teams? Yeah. Because I always feel like if you have a great, good cop, bad cop, you know, head coach is usually bad cop. Assistant coaches are there. Like after the coach, you know, 
brings you down, not brings you down, but you know, corrects you or whatever, or you're not playing well and he holds you accountable. Right. The, the, the assistant coach come up, pump your tires. Hey, like we know, we know what's inside you. We know you got more. That's why he's doing this to you. That's why you sat in the third period because we need more out of you. We expect more out of you because we know you have it. And then it's like, oh man, I got beat down, but I just got pumped up two more levels. Like they believe in me. Now I'm ready to go. Oh yeah. So as you, a, as you, an you can't have coach, bad cop, bad cop. <laughs> yeah. As an assistant coach, like there were times when Shafe would come into the office and be like, going to need you guys to do a lot of pumping up today because he knew that he was, you know, he was going to do that. He was going to be tough on certain individuals or the team in general. And it was like, all right, team's going to need you guys to have, be a little positive today because <laughs> I am not going to be. Right, right. But I mean, that's and, and when it's planned out beforehand and you talk about it as a coaching staff behind closed doors, you're just going to get more out of your players. So coaches who are who are doing, the, you know, thinking about how do I get the most out of my team, like use your assistant coach and your head coach and you, you are just like the team. You guys have different roles. And I think that needs to be discussed before the season as well. Like, Hey, you know, I'm going to be the guy who's always focusing on the X's and O's. I'm going to be the guy who's going to focus on this part of the game. I'm going to be the bad cop. Most of the time, I'm going to be the good cop, you know, those kind of things like that. If you, if you talk about what dynamic you want and what roles you want, you define them and then you stay within them. And then the other thing that I've noticed in at least minor hockey is that sometimes the assistant coach doesn't agree with the head coach is doing and they'll say that to the players. Oh yeah, totally. It is the worst thing you could do. If you're the assistant coach or the head coach, you guys don't agree with what each other's saying. Go in your room, close the door, talk it out, find a middle ground or whatever. If it's the head coach's team, like you do what he says, you can't be undermining the head coach or the assistant coach. You've got to present a united front. That is the worst thing you can do as a team. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the best way to look at it and the way that um, I've read about and even in my some of my experiences, it's almost like you almost want to be divided in the coach's room. You want to challenge each other. You want to confront each other. You want to make each other better and argue and all that kind of stuff. But once you open that door and you walk into the room, everybody's on the same page. Yeah. You have to be. Yeah. You just you absolutely 100% have to be. And uh so it's like almost like divided in the coach's room, united outside of it. Um because I one of the per, one of the people that I love reading about is Bill Belichick. And obviously he's arguably the best coach of all time in any sport with what he's done with the Patriots. And he would fire coaches, legitimately fire coaches if they were yes men. So if they were just people that wouldn't challenge the status quo, wouldn't challenge him on some of his ideas, all that kind of stuff, like he didn't want those people around. He he wanted a healthy discourse within his coach's room. So, you know, and you had to back up your opinions because you knew people were going to challenge you and answer and ask questions and things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, once that was over, everybody was on. Everybody knew exactly what the plan was when they walked out of that room. And then they executed on a united front as a coaching staff on the practice field, in the meeting rooms, in the video rooms and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah, it just makes sense. And it's like we've talked about with like systems, you know, at higher levels or, or ways of playing. It doesn't really matter what quote unquote system you're running. If you get every single member on the team to buy in, you're going to be better because everyone knows where everyone's going to be. Everyone knows everyone's responsibilities, uh, what you're going to do when there's a breakdown, all these things, you're on the same page. So you're going to get more out of whatever it is you're doing. It's the same thing as a coaching staff. You have to be on the same page. Absolutely. Absolutely. Glowingly. You said glowingly like three times, by the way. What I a said, sick adjective. I said glowingly. 
Oh my God, you didn't even know you said it. I can't wait for you to listen to this I episode. I need a fact check. I need a fact check. You were talking check. about Colin Fla- Frazier and you're like, he glowingly talked about the Sutters. <laughs> Did I really? I swear to God. <laughs> I thought it was your word of the day. No. Anyway. I didn't even, oh man, I need some sleep. This, Nerd alert. This six-week-old daughter, I need some sleep. Uh, well, with that, Let's head in on. Actually, before we do, head it on over to Colin. Uh, again, we want to do this every episode, but we want to thank everybody for uh, for tuning in and and supporting what we're doing at the Hockey Think Tank. And uh, we we really appreciate all the feedback. We appreciate everybody that's reached out, uh, that's given us ratings and reviews on iTunes and your Apple Podcasts on your phone. That goes a long way with us to getting more listeners, so we can help to spread our message. It also goes a long way with us in terms of you know what you guys want to talk about. We want to hear your feedback. We want to hear the guests that you like, the guests that you didn't. like like the, the topics that we talk about that you like and didn't and things that you want more of us from. Uh, we're trying to get better at this podcast game as well. Um, so we really, really appreciate uh, everybody that's uh, giving us some feedback, everybody that's tuning in. And uh, we really got some uh, some fun guests ahead and we can't, uh, can't thank you enough uh, for all that. So um, without further ado, let's head it on over to Colin Fraser. We are so excited to have on this episode of the podcast, Colin Fraser, who's living out in Red Deer, Alberta right now. Colin, how are we doing today? Doing well. How are you guys doing? I'm doing really good. Doing really good. Excited to have you on the podcast, known as one of the best teammates, three-time Stanley Cup winner. So certainly wanted to get into that stuff. But uh, before we get into your pro career, I want to ask you, uh, about how you fell in love uh, with the game. You grew up right outside Vancouver in Surrey, BC. So uh, if you can, just kind of tell us a little bit about uh, how you grew up loving the game and uh, what it was like playing hockey out in Vancouver growing up. Well, when you first talk about three Stanley Cups, I always like to tell people I rode a lot of coattails to get there. <laughs> and I just had good timing. And I was fortunate to play with some really, really good players. I was just the guy in the room trying to, I guess, keep it loose and be funny. But uh uh, I can't complain, I guess, uh, how it all worked out for me. Uh, Surrey, BC, just outside of Vancouver. Um, I was actually born in a small town called Sycamoose, home of Shea Weber and Cody Francis. Oh, so on the shoe why... swap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's beautiful country, oh. beautiful summer place. And uh, I still go there every summer. So that's, I guess, where my parents are from. Um, so, and I, and I say that because it's famous because of Shea Weber and Cody Franz, and not me, but I like to claim it as. <laughs> Where, where I come from, but moved to Surrey when I was three and my, I, my dad never played hockey. My mom, I guess, as the story goes, just put me and my older brother in it, uh, to basically keep us busy. Um, and I just happened to be, happened to be good at it. And you, in a day now where there's so many camps and options and coaches and, and everything, people ask me like, well, what did you do as a kid? And I said, I don't know. My practice was on a Tuesday. My, my dad, their mom took me to practice on a Tuesday. Like that was it. My dad was just, uh, electrician mom was a teacher's assistant with i have a brother and a sister there's no extra money for extra camps and extra travel it was just uh surrey minor hockey from whatever what it's october till march and that was it and then i played played lacrosse in the spring and just really kept it really simple compared to what it is today Yeah, for sure. And uh, it's gotten pretty crazy, like uh, with all the academies and stuff going on in, in Western Canada, it's even creeping over to Eastern Canada and into the States right now. Is that something that, you know, did you even have those academies back when you were growing up? And have you heard about many of them here today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, we didn't when I was growing up and uh, I do, I'm familiar with them now. Um, I, I can, 
I like it. I can get behind him at the Bantam age or midget age with a player who is an elite player who is potentially going to be, I don't even mean the NHL, just a college, like a, a hockey player, a real hockey player. Um, where it gets a little crazy, I guess, is when we got the six-year-olds on the ice 400 <laughs> times a year. So I guess that's where it gets a little crazy. And Academy for the six-year-olds, I don't can't really get behind that. But um, at the same time, I do run camps locally to Central Alberta. I do, you know, once weekly type stuff with, with littles and bigs and kind of everything in between and um, skills and drills and all kinds of stuff like that. And I think, I think that's awesome. But uh, the academies are taking over. Um, It's expensive, but I don't know. I I don't think Canada has, has anything on what, what people pay in the States for, uh, for, for minor hockey or a year's worth of hockey, just, based on you know it's more private you know like how we do minor hockey here it's just through where i live it's just through city red deer or whatever it is and it's um it's not half as expensive as what it would be down south yeah it's insane it's absolutely crazy so good luck with those three kids of yours (laughs) once you get there um but you mentioned you you live in red deer and uh you know a real famous hockey town in terms of junior hockey and that's where you played your junior hockey for the red deer rebels um living there right now um and i wanted to ask you about your experience there and particularly you played for brett sutter who is an icon when it comes to obviously the sutter family but but also you know they've had all the brothers that have played in the nhl he coached in the nhl as well um so what was it like playing up in red deer and specifically what was like playing for uh for brent sutter as well well, I had the luxury of playing for both Brent and Daryl. So, yeah. <laughs> um, Lucky you. I got real thick, <laughs> real thick skin real early in my career. I'll tell you that. So I, in all honesty, they're the best and they're the best. They're old school throwback guys. Um, but they're, they're very tough, but they're very fair. So I personally never had an issue because I kept my mouth shut. I put my head down and I worked hard and I did what was, what I was told. So if you do what you're told, follow the rules on the ice, within the systems, et cetera, then you won't have any problems. And he'll play you and play you and play you and play you. And I played a ton. And he's a big, Brent is a big reason why I think why I made the NHL and especially um, in the role I played in the NHL. I wasn't, I was a skill guy as a kid and I was a skill guy as a junior, but I wasn't skilled enough to be a skilled NHL player. So I had to adapt and I had to figure out, you know, what it was going to take for me to, to make the NHL. And I think Brent was a huge um, influence on my ability to do that. My, my ability to, to be able to fill a role and not be so worried about scoring goals or, you know, just be, take pride in small things, take pride in the penalty kill, take pride in winning a face off. Um, all those intangibles that that I think made me a player at the at the NHL level and um, gave me the career I had was was a lot from junior uh, learning from Brent. Even though I was on the power play in junior and all that stuff, it was still the the uh, small parts of the game, the game within the game, that really got me to the next level. Is there anything specifically that those coaches did to get your mind around being like, okay, not always scoring every game? Because I coach a U16 team here in St. Louis and I coached U18s last year. And one of the hardest things that, that I've found, you know, being my first two years getting into coaching is, is getting guys to like buy a, like a 
scouts aren't only watching scoring. Like they're looking at other things. Like at the next level, you're not going to be, not everyone's going to be a goal scorer. You know, sooner or later, 99.999% of guys are going to go up to a level where they're not just going to be able to score goals at will. So is there something they did to get you to kind of buy into that line of thinking that obviously worked for you with your NHL career? Well, I think the, I mean, number one, the whole team, it's a defense first philosophy. Um, and you're trying to win for the team, not win for yourself. So one of the lines Brent always had was if, if you have team success, we all have individual success. And it's true in the sense that you never know what ever talks about the 30th place team. And if player X has a hundred points on the 30th place team, no one really cares because he's not playing in June when it matters. Um, I think it just the like holding guys accountable and the details of the game. Brent didn't care if you, and Daryl didn't either. If you're Ronzi Kopitar or you're Colin Fraser, everyone was treated equally. And there's another reason why I had a lot of respect for those guys. The, the superstars or the the top end players didn't you know run the show, so to speak. Even though they're the best players, and that's how you win Stanley Cups and win all the games uh, off their shoulders. Clearly, but. Um, I mean, they're not afraid to give it to those guys if they're not going on a particular night. And, uh, you know, holding all those guys accountable, I think, um, kind of trickles down and sends a message to the whole team. I mean, for me, I don't know. I just, my, my personality, I did, it, obviously we all want to score goals, but I just, uh, I liked the other thing. Like you guys did a thing on Nick Jolmerson the other day. Like he takes pride in killing penalties and he takes pride in blocking shots. So good. And did anyone teach him that? Did anyone tell him that? I don't know, but uh, now I, I got more excited to kill a penalty than I did to go on the power play. As stupid as it sounds. Uh, I mean, obviously I want to be on the power play. Don't get me wrong, but uh, like for, for a guy like Patrick Kane feels on the power play, holding the puck and setting plays up and ripping bar downs backhand. I loved going on the penalty kill and winning a face off and blocking a huge shot with a minute left in the game. Like that was just something I, like to do i don't know personality was it brent was it um nobody ever told me that stuff i just take pride in that stuff and i think um i don't know it's just kind of the way that's <laughs> kind of the way it worked out for me because some guys won't you guys played hockey some <laughs> guys won't do that you know what i mean they're just not a lot of guys want to do that yeah yeah, there's yeah like I... sauce and they just want to <laughs> float around i don't know it's like sometimes it's a bit of personality i think but you can't have a a team of 20 guys all wanting to chuck sauce to the back door like it just <laughs> won't work well I, I i had so much meat in my sauce that i couldn't hit the, the sauce to the back door anyways so that was a <laughs> non-factor but but um yeah it's funny i my first year in europe was the lockout in when was it like 2011 maybe or 12 or whatever and yalmerson signed in italy and that's where i was playing and i remember the first game we're playing he had a good buddy on my team and they're talking before the game uh, you know, they're both Swedes, whatever. First puck drops. We're starting against him. My buddy gets kind of a suey pass and Jarlson absolutely trucks him. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. dude, you're in Italy. You're probably over here for, you know, kind of fun. No, no, no. He was not. He was there for blood. Like he was there playing a hundred percent every game, the entire season that he was there for. So it was pretty crazy and like cool to see that, you know, you think all oh, guys coming over here, he's playing in the Italian league. He's going to take it easy. No, not the case. So I, I'm, I'm thinking like, it's gotta be a personality thing too, or maybe you just got to get coaches that can tap into that and, and get you excited about owning that being that type of person. 
Well, that's what we say. Like, I mean, for me, I mean, practice, I'd be like crazy. And the guy's like, Fraz, calm down. I'm like, one gear, boys, one gear. I only, I only go hard. That's all I know. I can't go 50%. It's like when you drink beers, I can't have one beer. I gotta have a hundred. You know, like it's one gear. It's a, that's like hammer. Like I played with him. Like he's got one gear. He's all in on everything. He's not going to a practice and going halfway and, and just out for a Sunday stroll. It's like, I think a lot of pros are like that unless, you know, I mean, I'm not saying 100% NHLers are full throttle all the time, but there's a reason why these guys are playing in the NHL. And we can sit here and say, player X was lazy and player Y had a bad game. But at the end of the day, we're all going to have bad games over an 82 game season. All those guys work hard. They're there for a reason. They work hard on the ice. They work hard off the ice. And if they don't, somebody else is taking their job. So um, you get back to the U16 level of these guys. I think, you know, if they go back to when they're five and six and eight, and 10, they're probably always the best player. But as the pool gets smaller and smaller and smaller, even at minor hockey or U16 or U18, it's harder for everybody to be that skill guy. So um, they just have to buy into it. If they're not that elite player anymore, I think they just, you know, you're going to find yourself out and unsuccessful or you're going to adapt and change and you'll find a way to be successful. Yeah, man, that that's so true. And and I think that that's why guys like Brett Sutter are so important, when, like even at the youth hockey level, because it rattles me so much watching like a youth game or U16, U18, even juniors and stuff where you see the offensive guys and they basically can do whatever the heck they want. You know, they're floating and they're not back checking and all that kind of stuff. Well, they're going to get a reality check real quick that once they get to the higher levels and they're not as like, they're not the best player anymore. If you don't have other facets to your game, your career is going to end really quick. And uh, a guy that I played with at Cornell, Riley Nash, like he came into Cornell as a, as a first round draft pick. Um, but at Cornell, we have a pretty kind of similar to, to Sutter. We got a pretty defensive minded coach who doesn't let you get away with cheating the game. And Riley Nash has an unbelievable career right now as a third line center, and he's going to make millions of dollars right. doing it. Um, so youth coaches are certainly cheating their players, especially their, uh, their better players. If they're not holding them accountable to, to learning the details of the game, that's going to make them well-rounded and, uh, they're almost doing them a disservice. Hundred percent. You got to be able to. Do, I have an eight-year-old son. And he plays defense, and he thinks he's Bobby Orr sometimes. And I said, <laughs> "Buddy, listen, you're the one that wants to play D. Okay, so if you're gonna play, rush the puck like Bobby Orr. You better get be the first guy back because you're a defenseman, not a forward. You want to play forward? Then go play forward. But you're the one that wants to play D. So you can't be rushing the puck, turning it over, and going for a big loop. He's only eight. So it's just the point of like. I don't know. Maybe I'm a hardcore hockey dad. I don't know. You tell me, but I just try to like ingrain the tangibles of defense first. And like you talk about all the details of the game, can't just be out for a Sunday stroll all the time. No, I love that. And something that, you know, so I try and reflect like as much as I can. And I look back on my first years as a coach and I'm an assistant coach. Cause I do not want the responsibility of being a head coach. It is so intense how much responsibility um, our head coach has at, at, in our organization. At least he's an unbelievable guy, Mike Barra. And so I was looking back on my, the way that I coached last year. And I was like, you know what? I think we can be better. Obviously I think we should do this. And I told him, I think for every drill we do in practice, when he's explaining it at the end of the drill or the beginning of the drill, say like, this is the detail that we really want to focus on in this drill, wherever possible. So if it's a shooting drill, instead of just letting the kids come in and shoot however they want, 
I'll be like, okay, the detail we're working on here is changing the angle of the puck right before you shoot. Or the second one, it's going to be you have to shoot in stride. No matter what, you have to shoot in stride. So every drill, we try and think of the detail that we want to get out of that drill and then be like, this is what you have to do in this drill. Because again, we're trying to work on every little detail, not just like go out there and don't do things without a purpose. So I think that's a big thing for any of the youth coaches listening. Like when you're making up your practices, Think about the details that you want to focus on in that drill, because like, I mean, listen to this guy, he's got three Stanley cups and he said details five times in the last two minutes. <laughs> so especially for these, not, I'm not talking about eight year olds, but like 15 and up, even juniors, like tell the kids what detail a certain drill is working on and make sure they're doing it. Hold them accountable to that detail. Well, they have to have that purpose and, and you can even explain the why and you don't have to blow the whole practice down and spend 10 minutes explaining the why, but you know, why do you pull it to your backhand when you're driving the net this way? Or why do you change the angle on the shot? Like you say, or why do we, you know, you're outside the dots. Let's put these, all these shots into his pads outside the dots, probably not going to score a bar down one of every 20 are going in. So let's put this one into the pads, shoot for a rebound and, and the reasoning behind it. Cause the kids, they're kids like they, they hear the words, but why do we do this? And I think that's, that's one thing I do with the kids around here is try to explain the, the, why do we do this? Or why do we put our hands here? Trying to, so it makes sense to them in a game. Oh, this is why we do that. Instead of just going out there and skating around a pylon for the sake of skating around a pylon. Yeah, for totally. sure. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Well, uh, you know, we're talking about your junior career in Red Deer, and uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you. You're a proud Canadian, and uh, you played on the Canadian World Junior Team and won a gold medal. What was that like as a Canadian, winning the gold medal, and then going back to Red Deer and being able to celebrate with your home country? Was that that must have been unreal? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the World Juniors in Canada is like crazy compared to all the other countries like it's like a tradition it's like a canadian tradition to on christmas day or boxing day the 26th um you sit down or you watch the world juniors like that's what hockey people do here and so watching that my whole life and then knowing you're close to being a part of it but then it's a lockout year it was uh 2004 uh 2004 when they shut down the whole season so it's going to be harder to make this team with players with patrice bergeron crosby Getzlaff, Perry, Fanuf, Weber. We have <laughs> like Hall of Famer upon Hall of Famer. It's crazy when you go through the roster. And uh, so I'm like, hey, how am I going to make this team? And it gets back to I have to fill a role. I can't be I, as the captain of my junior team, as the first line center and all this stuff, but I'm, I'm not going to be that guy on the world junior team. So um, I guess lucky for me, I had Brent Sutter was the head coach. So I had a guy in my corner that kind of knew who I was as a player. Um, still have to play well. It's not, a, you know, he's not putting you on the team if you, if you don't play well, but I was able to have a good camp and then play for Canada. And we really, we steamrolled everybody with the team we had. It was, it was, uh, um, pretty crazy. And then to, to be a part of that is very special. Something you'll never forget. And, um, I don't know, it's kind of weird, like good timing, good luck, uh, hard work, kind of all that stuff. And then, kind of I guess could set you up for pro as I finish the season in Red Deer and then turn pro the next year 
That's awesome, man. That's awesome, Dan. And the other thing I wanted to ask you too, just uh, before we get to your pro career, is uh, you know, in in juniors when you were in Red Deer, uh, from from talking to some of the guys that have played with you that we kind of mutually know, you, you're known as one of the like one of the glue guys, one of the top teammates that they've ever had. And you also won the Humanitarian of the Year award for the WHL for your service in Red Deer. Um, how important is that to you? Um, just what you do away from the rink, um, both as a teammate and almost kind of like as a citizen. And uh, do you think that that attributed to, you know, prolonging your career and the career that you had as well? Uh, yeah, I do. I think, uh, you know, you always hear, always signed player X, you know, he's a good guy in the room, good guy in the room. I just, I don't know, I guess the values my parents instilled in me was, you know, the cliches, treat everyone equal, be nice to everybody, all those kinds of things. And I, I don't know. I think I was just, I don't know. My dad was an honest, hardworking guy, electrician, worked six days a week, eight hours a day, never complained, never whined, like just was kind of a good role model in that sense. So I don't know. I just, just my makeup, I never, and it was never weird for me to, 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 I guess, be a good teammate and put the team first and, and not, I don't know. I guess maybe even Brent too, like you talk about, individual success and team success like it's not a lot of times where selfish guys are successful i mean they're successful maybe in the short term but not in the long term and everybody the hockey culture kind of sees right through that you can't you know hockey's not basketball you can't load up with three players and expect to win the stanley cup so i just always wanted to bring an element i guess to the you know to the locker room as well as the uh the ice as a player that just I don't know. He stays quiet, puts his head down and works hard. I don't, uh, as I got older, I think back, like, you know, guys would be like, Oh, this four checks dumb or this power play's dumb or whatever it is. And I'm sitting there and be like, you know what? You're right. It is dumb. Okay. We have two choices here. We can uh, all complain about it being dumb or we can just shut up and just do it and then be done with it. Like, cause if we're all not going to do it, then we're not going to be very good. I promise <laughs> you that. So it's just true. Like you don't have to like every single thing. You don't have to think that every single thing is right, but at the same time, you just have to do it and you'll be successful. And I think that's one of the things I learned being on the teams I was on, like not everybody loves Daryl Sutter, but at the same time, 23 guys bought into what he was saying and we were pretty successful. And I don't think uh, anyone would, would say otherwise. Any of those guys that played on, on those teams would say otherwise. Dude, that is that is like so true. The the whole buying in thing and how important that is. I mean, like everybody like teams have won Stanley Cups and championships at every level playing millions of different systems. It's not the system that matters. It's it's how everybody buys into it. And uh I, yeah. I love what you said, like you don't have to like it. But the worst thing that you can do as a player is sit around in your I – I like to call it the meeting after the meeting when you're kind of away from the rink and you're <laughs> having lunch with the boys or having a couple beers with the boys. Like those conversations go two ways. They are bitch fests at the coach and how they don't like everything and then that just turns into a negative culture and you're never going to win that way. Or it's, you know, it's good conversations and it's, hey, like I know we don't like it but – we got to do it and we're not going to go. I've never heard of any team that's ever won a championship where everybody didn't buy in. I, I don't think yeah, don't, no, that you, doesn't happen. St. Louis <laughs> the prime example. Look at those guys. They're in 31st place in January and they just kind of started believing and they just, did they reinvent the wheel? They didn't reinvent the wheel. They just kind of all bought in and it just kept steamrolling and steamrolling and steamrolling. And then they win the whole thing. So they didn't change anything from yeah. January to 
from October to January, January to the end of the year, I bet you they didn't really change anything at all. They just started believing and kind of just bought in. I mean, I don't know that, but that's my assumption. No, it's so true. And you're actually like the perfect person to ask this as we're talking about this topic, because you won Stanley Cups with two different organizations. And I would venture a guess to say that the style of play between those two organizations are a little bit different, you know, between Chicago and and when you won with them and then LA and and how you won with them. And it's interesting to, to look at just the NHL is a copycat league. And when Chicago was winning, everybody's like, oh, we got to get more skill. We got to get more speed. We got to get more skill. We got to more speed. Then LA wins. And it's like, oh, we got to get bigger. We got to get tougher. We got to get more sandpaper. And then Pittsburgh wins. Oh, we got to get skilled. And then St. Louis wins. It's, oh, we got to get tougher and bigger and all this kind of stuff. So like you played in both. Does it really matter the style of play or does it matter that the buy-in? Like you've, you've won two different ways. So what do you think? Well, I think... I mean, both teams, when, if we talk Chicago, uh, I was on the 2010 team, and you talk speed and skill, we had it, but we had grit too. And we had guys like Dustin Bufflin and Andrew Ladd and Brent Seabrook and Duncan Keith. These guys are hard players. I'm not talking they're fighting, and I'm not talking they're goons. I'm just saying they're not just speed demons that don't touch anyone out there. It was like we kind of had a good combo of both. And I could say the same with LA where we had big, strong, heavy team. We did play more old school than, than uh, Chicago would have um, in 10. But I mean, Ozzy Kopitar is pretty skilled and Drew Doughty is pretty skilled. And I like to use the term hard skill where these guys are elite skilled players, but they're also hard on pucks where they win battles. They play two ways. Um, they don't cheat the system. They're not, cookie monsters looking for their for their points they are looking to win and with that they have success on the score sheet as well um the culture in both were like the leadership groups were unbelievable you talk about your your bitch fest we didn't have many bitch fests and it's hard to have bitch fest when you're winning all the time but (laughs) it's like um i don't know like these guys everyone is kind of on the same page and all the wives and girlfriends are on the same page and we'd all go out together and there's no clicks and there, it sounds really cliche, but it is true because both teams were like that where the culture were in the togetherness and the team camaraderie was so good that we all kind of just bought in and we all wanted to play together. And there's, it's not like blowing steam. It's the truth where some of these other teams, it's just for whatever reason, I don't know the answers why, but it's just not, just not the same and it's hard to win when you have one guy going east and one guy going west it just doesn't work and if you're gonna have a bitch fest don't do it in an uber <laughs> yeah <laughs> i felt bad for those guys oh, oh my gosh that's We've one of my buddies and, oh those poor buggers so i felt bad for them <laughs> yeah that sucks that's so but, funny but on a, on a real note, like Tof and I actually talk about this all the time. Like you don't want to be an energy vampire. Like it, one turns into two really quickly. And it sounds like from what you're saying, I mean, it, it all starts with good leadership, getting everyone to buy in and be like, like Tof said, whether you like the systems or not, if you're out there working as a unit, 
that's much harder to beat than five individuals doing their own thing. You know, I mean, the puck moves way faster than anyone can skate. So like just thinking from an offensive standpoint, you got one guy trying to go through a whole team or you got five guys going together, supporting, moving with each other, jumping into holes, whatever kind of offensive scheme your coach is kind of putting together. That's way harder to defend than one guy going around the ice by himself. And that's just like a small look into like an entire game. But if everyone's on the same page, you know, that's a force to be reckoned with. A hundred percent. I mean, just the guys, we just all got along like off the ice and you know, it's, you can't, I mean, when you're picking a team, you don't obviously know all the personalities and how it's all going to mash and gel and all that stuff, but it does start with the leadership group kind of keeps it all together. And we're, you know, Taves and Kane and Duncan Keith. And then in LA, it's, I mean, Matt Green and, um, Drew and I mean, Kopitar, these guys are just down to earth, good human beings that treat everyone equally. And just because they drive nicer cars doesn't mean that they're better <laughs> than the fourth line grinder. Like they, I felt just as valuable to that team as as they did, even though their paychecks were a little bit bigger. It was, uh, it's nice that way. And then the, even off the ice, it's just it all goes hand in hand for me anyway. And being on those successful teams, it really does all go hand in hand. Oh man, I totally, totally agree with you. Like every championship team that I've ever been on was like so close. And I have, I, I wanted to get into this because uh, I have uh, in front of me a, an article from the Athletic, Mark Lazarus, and he uh, he kind of went in and, and talked to a bunch of you guys about your 2010 team winning a Stanley Cup. It's all true. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. And I'm sure there's a lot that was left out even still. But um, I just think that like one of the quotes that you had in here is just it's so prophetic and so true about, you know, the way that kind of things used to be and the way that they're kind of going right now. And Jeff and I have talked on the podcast about how, you know, guys are so individualized and so worried about their careers at the highest levels that a lot of times the the team camaraderie aspect that you're talking about is so com- important is is tough to get. And and the quote that you have is who are you going to get a beer with these days? They just play video games. From birth, all these kids are born and bred superstars. From age five, all they do is live, breathe, and eat hockey. They're like robots. They're professional athletes with perfect bodies. They don't put any poisons into their bodies, no extracurriculars. Meanwhile, we'd get into Nashville and roll out to Tootsies, right out to Tootsies. Not five of us, not ten of us, all 20 of us, every time. These guys nowadays, they're sitting in the rooms playing video games. And uh, we talk about all the time how that, uh, almost like that unstructured hanging out with each other away from the rink, like that's what championship teams do. So I wanted to ask you about that quote and just uh, how you guys kind of built that with uh, with your Chicago team in this article in 2010. Well, I and I want to be, I played video games too, by the way. I did. <laughs> I like video games, but it's like, I also did everything else too. So, um I don't know. Like it's true. And we would do that at Tootsie's and we would roll 20, 20 guys deep and we'd play the next day and we'd win. And so it was maybe easy because our team was so good and our team was so young. And we had like this, I don't know, the camaraderie was so good, but it's, it's not so much about just drinking beers. It's more of the togetherness and being a team and liking each other. And, and then on the ice, wanting to go to, to bat for each other. Um, now it's almost, I don't want to say every player because it's not, we're not, I don't want to stereotype every guy, but it's like you punch the clock, you know, you go to the rink, you do your practice. They work hard and they work hard on and off the ice and they want to be great players. And it's, they're way better player than I was when I played. 
It's just now it's robotic, you know, punch the clock, go to practice, go home, punch the clock, go to practice, go home. And it's not, I don't know. I guess it's not the same. I don't know. It's the same thing too. Like I can't be this old guy being like, Oh, back when I played, it was way better. You know, I mean, the society has changed too. It's not just a hockey thing. It's kind of, it's all changed. Um, whether it's good or bad, it doesn't matter. It is different. So, um, but I do think that was a big reason why we were successful. And Adam Burrish has quotes in there too, much the same where he talks about going to the pony with all the wives and girlfriends. And it's, it's, uh, you know, till four in the morning in the middle of the playoffs. Uh, and it's true. It, it happened. <laughs> it was crazy. And it was awesome. And I look back on it, like how much fun we had. And it was just, it was awesome. It really was good stuff. And I know as a player, when I, you think about like, if you, if you're just always on yourself, got to play good, got to play good, got to play good. And you put so much pressure on yourself. Sometimes you just need to relax. And I don't mean that by crushing beers. I just go golfing or just get your mind away from the game and just chill out, reset and get that kind of positive energy back. Cause I found as a player, if I was always stressing myself out, I never played good. So maybe we let loose in different ways that they do today, but I still think there's an element to be able to shut your brain off, reset, let loose, take a day, take some rest and get going again because it's hard to have success. If you're just always squeezing the stick all the time and panic button city, every time you, somebody's on you, you know, like you're not making plays, you're not, and then you're beating yourself up more and it becomes this constant, I guess, train wreck that you can't, get out of if you just don't reset that's how i felt anyway we had someone <clears throat> on the podcast a few months ago who was it tough was it the nhlpa guy who was talking about the studies they've done where if you have like a serious interest or hobby that you're working on outside the game it lights up different areas of your brain and, and they've found that people are way better at their sport when they do that yeah, yeah, it was Duncan Fletcher who does some work yeah. with the NHL transition program. Was saying how yeah. like the the players who have an outside interest actually perform better. Yeah, makes total it sense. It only I makes mean, sense to me. You got to yeah, I mean, if you're a whatever your sport is or your your I don't know whatever your um, field of work is like you got to we all got to get away. You run your own your business, man. You got to take a day off and hit the links. You got to take a day off and hang out with your family. Like you can't just be you know, and expect to be as successful as you can be in my opinion, anyway, without getting into science. I just, I think it's good to take that rest and that reset, hit the reset button. Well, do you, do you have any science, Colin? Can you give us some science? (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any science, but I got opinions whether they're right or wrong. I can, uh, uh, I'm not afraid to tell you what I think. uh, I may be wrong. I've been wrong before. Uh, I love that. Uh, well, that's cool, man. Well, the fact that you got to, you know, obviously live through that and being from Chicago, you know, I know how unbelievable it was when you guys won that first cup. And um, what was, you know, what was the scene like in the city after you guys won? It, it must have been just surreal. It was a circus. Like we, we won in Philly. We landed in Chicago, I don't know, three, four in the morning, whatever time it was. And they're like a sea of people. We went to, um, Harry carries out by the airport and it was like a sea of people like waiting. And then I didn't get home till I don't know, seven, eight in the morning, whatever it was. And the next day we had like afternoon, we had like, I don't think anyone knew what we were in for, including the, the Chicago police. Cause we, 
oh, let's start taking the cup to these bars. Well, it was like we needed police escorts. They're shutting streets down. It was like, because social media is going crazy, all the cups here, all the cups there. And it was like a complete gong show everywhere we went. And crazy, like didn't pay for anything, no rules, standing on bars, literally doing whatever the heck you wanted. We could do do anything. And then we were getting rides home, like with the police, like, hey, time to go home. And they'd put you in the car to get you out of the, you know, escort you out of the bar and put you in the car to get you home. It was just a complete melee. And then the, the parade was just unbelievable. I don't even know millions of people, three, 4 million. I don't know how many people were there, 2 million, whatever it was, it was just crazy. And I was almost not literally, but like almost crying that it was like so surreal that there's this many people watching a bus drive by. Like, I'm not, I don't know, maybe when you're in it, you think of it a little bit differently, but how many people came downtown? It was a hot day. It was beautiful. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you guys were there, but it was crazy, crazy stuff. And I have it all on video and uh, something you can show the kids, but something you can't really explain unless you're a part of. That's unreal, man. You know who was there, Jeff, was Danny Richmond. He was playing in, uh, <laughs> for their AHL team at the time because he, he was part of that crew, wasn't he, Danny? He was, and he's a legend, this guy. I lived with him <laughs> Richmond, my first year pro. Did you he's really? My fav- oh, he's one of my favorite human beings I've ever met in my life. So uh, he, uh, he makes me laugh, that guy. Uh, I was talking to him yesterday. He's going he's gonna to ask Winnipeg if he can come on the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. He's, well, yeah, he's scouting for Winnipeg. Yeah, he caught. We connected, uh, I don't know, probably in June, I met up with them in Vancouver at the draft. He was kind of networking and trying to get in there. And yeah, he got a job with Winnipeg. So he's good. He's a good man. Really yeah. Good man. I, uh, I actually grew up with him. So we played like hockey together and his dad was our coach, uh, growing up when we were like, I don't know, nine, 10 years old. And I just remember, um, I was out, uh, where was I? I think I was out here in, in New York at the time. And uh, I remember like my friends from high school, um, they were at the parade and they were like, what the hell's Danny Richmond doing on all these Chicago Blackhawks floats? <laughs> like, is he on the he Blackhawks? What's going tail. on? Yeah. You. We ride <laughs> Smart. That's so Smart. funny. That's so funny. Well, hey, I, I got to ask you a question because uh, I get, like I said, I got to talk to a few of your teammates that you played with uh, beforehand. And, uh, and one of the things that I was told to ask you is um, – you know, this thing that you did when you were playing in L.A., it was uh, this little growl that you used to do, say, make them pay. Um, so what, uh, what, what's that story <laughs> all source? about? <laughs> Who's your story? I, I, am a, I am a journalist now. I'm in the media, so I cannot reveal my sources. But uh, I do have a source that says you had to make them pay, and it was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, gosh, these guys. So I was, I'd be on the bench. I was very vocal. Like it wouldn't shut up the whole game. Come on, come on, <laughs> let's go, let's go, let's go. And I was paying, I was playing with my first game. I'd, I came, long story short, came to LA. I, had, I was injured. So I didn't play till, I don't know, November. And, um, um, trying to think of his name. Uh, Ethan, uh, Morrow played in Edmonton forever. Signed in LA and didn't play, maybe played there two months, but he was my line mate. And the other team was taking a penalty. And every time they'd take a penalty, I'd yell out, make them pay, make them pay. as a stupid line. Didn't think anything of it. Well, he started like telling all the guys, like, listen to this guy. Can you hear this guy? Like every time there's a penalty, <laughs> make them pay. So the, just it steamrolled into this whole stupid joke. And then so 
in the room, I'd always have to yell out this, make them pay for the boys. And then they had it on the jumbotron and it became this running <laughs> joke for the next three seasons that Fraser tells everybody to make them pay. So I kind of like it though. I kind of run with it. If they're not making fun of you, then they don't like you. So I'm okay <laughs> if you guys make fun of me a little bit. That's real. That's so funny. Well, that, I, I will reveal my source. It was Dustin, Dustin Brown. So I texted him the other day. I told him you were coming on, and he, he told me that story. And he also says that yeah. you're making him pay for it because uh, the picture of you guys winning the cup uh, is right at the practice rink, right when they walk in. And he said you had that stupid face on during that picture. You got to walk <laughs> by it every day. So he sees you every day with that every stupid day. face. So he's like, he's, he's making yeah, us pay had- now. <laughs> <laughs> they had this huge I don't know if it's still there I've been there for a while but after we won in 12 the next year we go back for the um, uh, like the practice rink and they have this huge 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 picture of the team picture like on the ice winning the cup and there I am it's like you can see my face like that's what I'm saying and so like every practice I go out there and the guys just look at look at you look at you idiot make a pay make them pay <laughs> Full of intensity, guys. That's all I got. I told you earlier, one gear, all intensity, all in time. That's all I got. Ricky That's Bobby, just one speed. I love it. <laughs> That's it. Oh, my God. Well, you mentioned... Well, he's a good guy, too. Yeah. Well, you mentioned, like, uh, you you know, you talk on the bench and stuff like that. How important do you think that communication is on the bench? Because I've always been a big believer that, like, the, the attitude on the bench is a huge indicator of success on the ice. And uh, when guys are kind of talking to each other and they're positive and even giving each other crap every once in a while, like, I feel like that's always a good thing when you have good, like, kind of juju and stuff like that on the bench. Is that something that was important to you and something that you saw while you were playing at the higher levels too? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if I, if I was only going to play eight minutes, I just didn't want to sit there and, and uh, I, I wanted, I, I needed to stay involved in the game. So that was my way of staying involved because um, there's lots, I mean, some games there's long lapses, whether it's penalties and whatever else is going on or it's a tight game or whatever, and you just don't play. And so, you know, your mind starts to wander. And I just, um, it was my way of staying engaged in the game, being vocal. And then I, I felt it was part of my role um, to provide energy and to, um, I don't know, it was all positive stuff, like keep keep the bench lively. You don't, you know, when you're in the dog days of January and it's a Tuesday and, you know, you're playing, um, I don't know, the 30th place team, it's not always easy to be motivated. So it was kind of, I guess, my idea to, you know, part of my role and then selfishly for myself to stay engaged in the game, to be ready when, when it was my turn to go. I mean, there's you know, some games I played two minutes, you know, so that's a long time to be sitting there to be doing nothing, not bringing anything. So I wanted to bring some kind of element to the table to, to help out any way I could. That's massive. And I was the exact same way. Um, and, and one of the guys that I always looked up to growing up and we had him early on in the podcast is Cam Jansen, a guy from St. Louis here. And I learned a lot from him being that same way. Like, you know, he was probably playing even less than you in some of those games where he's playing, you know, four shifts a game, but everybody's like best locker room guy ever, best locker room guy ever unreal on the bench, always keeping the boys up. And I, I would always try and bring that element to the bench as well. And then for any of the kids listening too, like it, as, as long as it's not fake, like you care and you want to keep your team up, it shows the coach. Oh, well, all right. You haven't played in six minutes, but you're still up. You're like you're moving around, like you're helping the boys out. It, it might help that coach 
put you out there for a shift where maybe you wouldn't because like he can tell you're ready when other guys are tired. So there's like so many different factors that that'll help not only you, but it'll help the team. It'll keep the spirits up on the bench, everybody light, everybody excited. Like, I think it's so massive. Like Tove said, I mean, you can look at a bench and you can tell like if a team is into it, if they're positive, if they're winning just by kind of what their bench culture is. A hundred percent. I mean, and if you're going to sit there and pout, I know I had a one way ticket to the minors if that was going to be my attitude. So I couldn't, I couldn't do that. I mean, I knew that wasn't in the cards and then it comes back to that team first mentality and, you know, individual success and team success. I think, um, I don't know, it was just natural for me to, to be like that. It wasn't, uh, I talk a lot as it is. So for me to sit there quietly for a whole game, it just wasn't really something that would work for me. And, um, and I, I think you're right when you say that it's, it's, if it's the opposite. If you're pouting or, or if it's fake, it just, it's not going to, your coach isn't going to like that <laughs> if it's fake or it's forced or, oh, that's the worst. or it's nothing at all. And then and you can tell you're not fooling anybody, you know? So, um, you know, and then when you do get your chance, you just go play and just do do your best, make the most of your opportunity, and the rest kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, unreal. Well, that role that you played was was obviously important, and you don't win three Stanley Cups without having you know guys like you in the lineup. And and one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you know, which was a lot of your role as you played in the NHL, was penalty killing. And uh, we haven't really gotten in depth much on on talking penalty kill, Jeff, on the podcast. But wanted to ask you, like, if you can, for the coaches and the kids that, that listen to this book, what are, like, maybe two or three things, maybe habits uh, or things that you thought about on the penalty kill that led to, uh, you know, you really flourishing in that role at the highest level of hockey? Yeah, penalty kill. Uh, number one, all day long, less is more. So you're down a guy, less is more. Don't be too revved up to forecheck and waste energy. Don't be too revved up in your D zone to jump outside the dots or to chase a loose puck, uh, a 50, 50 puck, or, you know, one that you're not going to get. Um, if you're going to get it all by all means force pressure, but I think especially up the ice, you got to have good angles and a good stick. So you got to turn your brain on a little bit more. So when you're out there on the power play against Jamie Ben and Yarmer Yager and uh, Tyler Sagan, you got to turn your brain on because these guys are good. So if you're just going to, if I was going to run around like a chicken with my head cut off, they'll just eat you alive. That's what they want. So, um, less is more is my biggest thing. Like just <clears throat> calm down, take away the angles and have a good stick. Those are my, those are my three things. Um, you know, don't like five on five. Yeah. Four check, go hard, finish your checks all in on everything. PK, take a step back. <laughs> assess the situation and don't don't you, you can't get caught out of position because it'll be in your back of your net before you even turn around to know what's going on yeah how how good was Jalberson when you were playing together in Chicago on the penalty kill like is it one of those things because I've played on teams where you know you know that a couple of guys are jumping over the boards on the PK and you're like they're not going to score like you're not even freaking worried about it was he one of those guys nope. for you and was it was it just unreal to watch him 100% big long stick on him so he's busting up plays everywhere, stuff that an average hockey fan wouldn't even notice, but it's like the intangibles that are huge. Um, and he just eat pucks. Like he would, he'd take a knee. He knows Sheldon Surrey stepping into a hundred mile an hour clapper. And he's just, he ain't getting out of the way. He's just going to eat it and it's going to hurt. And he knows it's going to hurt. And 
mad respect to guys that do that. Um, two more was Matt Green and Willie Mitchell in LA. I watched these guys in the Stanley Cup finals against Jersey single-handedly kill off a five-on-three penalty kill for two minutes straight. They didn't come off the ice once. And they weren't coming off the ice. <laughs> if you even open the gate, they're not coming. That's their job. So they just take a knee. They know it's coming. And if it hits them in the face, it hits them in the face. And hopefully you don't want to see that, but they ain't getting out of the way. And there's something to be said about guys like that. And then you see your skill guys see that. This is my opinion anyway. Your top guys see that when it's power play time. All right, those guys did their job. Time for us to do our job. And that's kind of back to that team camaraderie of you know having each other's backs it's not all about fighting and hitting and trying to get even it's just he did his job now it's our turn to do our job so john Emerson always good brent sopel we used to call him robocop because he'd be stitching on a piece of equipment to his shoulder pad or his elbow pad or his shin pad and he had all these extra plastics all over him <laughs> sit there and he'd just eat pox just take a knee and here it comes and it is what it is. How important is it when you're blocking shots to like, like, like some kids, and uh, uh, you know, we have a lot of kids that listen to the podcast, younger guys, junior guys, stuff like that. Like, is there an art to blocking shots? Like, or are you just going out there? You're just running at somebody full speed. No, you know, you gotta be again to that. Less is more. One, yeah. one time there's uh Terry Murray was the coach in LA and I, uh, Brent Burns took like a big scrape to ceiling and I, I slid sideways like a, like a two-pad stack to block the shot. Well, he just pump-faked me and walked right around me. And Terry ripped, uh, uh, ripped a hole in me. <laughs> <Don't> you <laughs> ever leave your feet again. So the lesson learned, it was a desperation move, you know, like I know it's not the right thing to do, but you kind of get desperate sometimes. And I never slid. Now, you can take a knee and you can be in the shooting lane, but I mean slide sideways where you're sliding completely <laughs> out of position. And it looks good if the guy buries his, uh, uh, I don't know who's, if it's, uh, Alec Martinez, he's a good buddy of mine and he's got oh. his eyes closed and, and he no. just pump, pumps one right into your shin pads. Well, yeah, it looks good. But if it's Eric Carlson and he pump fakes you and then walks right around you, it looks really bad. So the art is being in the shooting lane and less is more like just take a knee and make yourself big and be willing to eat the puck. But don't be sliding left and right where these good players that have their heads up all the time can kind of see that coming. They almost bait you into it. I love that you chirp Martinez because I was just about to tell a story where I was in the American league playing for Providence and we go into overtime and uh, coach puts me out there to take a draw. I'm not a centerman. I don't know why he had me take the draw. So I obviously lose the draw. Martinez gets the puck and I sprint out at him, go to take a knee as he winds up fake clapper spinorama around me dangle bar down end of overtime and i just yeah. got absolutely roasted in the locker room after <laughs> you're still at the red line you're still in the oh, i just it watched him just go in and go bar down and i was like that was 100 percent my fault we lost that game <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking ah yeah you got me on that one. i don't know i, but I, I learned to him I learned I never, ever. So that was probably, I think that was year one next nine years. I never, ever sprint out at a guy that fast again when I was going to block a shot. So at least I learned something. Jeff's got one speed too. He's got one speed. He had to learn to. I say one speed. I don't say a hundred. I go, I got one speed. That's all I got. (laughs) No, one speed. (laughs) 
Oh, that's good. Well, well, Fridge, we got, we got, uh, we've had you on here for quite a bit, but I uh, wanted to ask you what you're up to now. Um, you know, and talking a little bit before the podcast, it sounds like you got a really good thing going with this company school, you that you're doing, um, pairing up, uh, you know, amateurs with, with, uh, kind of masters, if that's what you want to call it in, in certain professions. So, um, if you can just talk to us a little bit about what you're doing and, uh, you know, the thing that you have going on now. Well, I got a few things. I mean, I run, I run camps locally to central Alberta. So really love getting on the ice with the kids. Um, I have my own son who's eight, got another one coming who's three and I got a daughter. She doesn't play, but, um, all their friends kind of come to the camps and I really enjoy that. I'm scouting amateur scout for the Blackhawks. Uh, so I'm just getting ramped up here this weekend. We'll be doing that in Western league, AJHL, BCHL town on the pavement. Um, I guess that's my, my real job, but I've joined this other company too. It's just more on the hockey side of things, but the company's called school. U, uh, spelt S C O O L and then the letter U. And basically, uh, it's not just a hockey. Um, it's just not, it's not just a hockey specific, uh, help place. It's, it's all sports, all fields, but I help on the hockey side. So what we do is connect players to the top coaches in their field. So we have coaches like Ron Johnson, who's worked with Patrick Marlowe and Joe Pavelski and, we have Tyler Kennedy, who's just joined the platform, who won Stanley Cups in Pittsburgh and played with Crosby and is really starting to ramp up on the skill development side. We have Dominic Pittis, who's played in Switzerland for years, but he uh, skills coach with the Flames and now the New Jersey Devils and among others, Bryce Salvador and J.S. O'Ban and Nat. And, um, we pair not only amateurs, but pro guys too, NHL guys, American League guys, drafted guys, guys that are going to be drafted. And what we try to do is build out a whole package for you. So it's not just about skills coach Ron Johnson. We can pair you with Ian Mack, who is the strength coach for Patrick Kane and Connor Carrick and JT Comfer in Chicago. And, you know, our mental skills coach, uh, Sean Goodsell, who works with NFL and NHL guys. And we can put all three of them together, or maybe you just want two of them, or maybe you just want one of them. And you can build this custom package um, as to how you see fit. And uh, the company's, it's successful at that so far and we're going to grow it to an online platform where you're a minor hockey player in St. Louis or Chicago or New York or wherever you are and you can get access to these top level coaches via video review or a live one-on-one lesson uh, maybe in your backyard rink or in your shooting gallery with you know a FaceTime type uh, call so there's many different ways to to be a part of it um and to get access to these top coaches because, uh, let's face it, not, not all the kids are learning everything good. So it's, yeah. uh, uh, it's just something that I kind of bought into. We talked off air before, but as a player, my one regret is not um, investing in myself more. So once I made the NHL, I kind of was like, whew, I made it. I'm good. And I, and I, and I stopped working on my skating and I stopped, you know, I was in the gym just trying to get bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger and, why wasn't I even just stick handling a ball or why wasn't I practicing my shot off the ice? Why wasn't I doing all these things that I do with my, my own eight year old now? And it's a regret I have. So when this company approached me, I, I jumped on board right away just because I can get behind. It just kind of made sense for me. I can get behind that because that's something that I wish, I wish I would have invested in myself more um, on the skills and skating side of things and not just be this, 
fourth line guy that skates a hundred mile an hour, hit somebody, dump it in and change. So, I mean, that's, that's why that's, I mean, that's such a, you talk about the word invest. Um, I feel like that's something that's so important if you want to get better, you know, like you have to invest in yourself and that doesn't even mean hockey player. Like, you know, if you want to be a better recruit, like let's say you're a college coach, you want to be a better recruiter, Mm -hmm. like invest in time of making phone calls. You want to be a salesman, invest in that. Like you have to invest in yourself and make yourself better if you want to be the best that you can be. And, uh, the fact that you have this company and, and that's something that, uh, you know, is, is really valuable to you. I think that's really cool. Yeah. And the company, it's cool. Cause it's not, I mean, I talk just hockey, but it's all sports. You're basketball and it's a hockey podcast, but, um, basketball, football, uh, music, guitar, drumming, uh, boxing, whatever you want. The, they have the, the, the platform for all of it. So, um, some guys really like fitness. So they might be a hockey guy, but they want to work with Owen Roddy, Connor McGregor, strength coach, or they want to learn the guitar. They can be connected to, a, you know, a t- elite level guitarist that have won Grammy awards and played with Lady Gaga and all this stuff. So it's, it's kind of not just one field and you can mix and match and go across all fields. So it's, I, I think it's, a, I'm biased, but I think it's a really cool platform and I, uh, it's, successful so far and it's growing and we want to continue to to keep it rolling and Frazier, i i think that that school you is so cool i just looked it up on twitter and i saw you got like a, you said you have fitness people on there and you have ian mack and and we talked about connor carrick and i watch a lot of his instagram stuff and for any of the kids out there like i i i tell everyone like use social media to learn things following Connor Carrick is one of the best things you can do. He's very inspirational. He's always teaching people things and he has this trainer, um, Ian Mack, and he's part of the school you program. And something I've learned as I got older is that people who are in, in make it in their field. So like Colin Frazier, you can call with this school you thing and learn from him. There are so many little things that you pick up at, at every level you go up in that you just unfortunately can't learn from like a normal youth coach. Probably like Frazier has things in his head that he's learned from the best coaches, the best players in the world that unless you're around them on a daily basis, you just literally can't learn them. A school you think like I'm, I don't work for them. I'm just, I think it's such a cool idea. And I wish when I was younger that I could have paid some money to call a guy like this and just pick his brain for an hour. Hey, what do you think about this? How can I get better at this? There's a reason that you win three Stanley Cups, and there's a lot of knowledge you pick up on doing something like that. And I'll tell you, I'm going to tell my whole team about this tonight when I'm at the rink, and hopefully some of them uh, want to talk to you. Hey, two kind, good kind words there. And that's said <laughs> about that's why I got behind it because I didn't. I was a pro, and I didn't do that, and I felt I could have. You're never, uh, you know, Tiger Woods can redo his swing in the at the peak of his career and Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon are still like ever evolving and trying to get better. And so why couldn't I? And I think that's uh, a big reason whether you're, you know, a 10 year old or a 30 year old in the NHL, we can all get better and we can uh, just don't be satisfied. So that's uh, you hit the nail on the head. You got it. And that's true for players and it's true for coaches too. I think the best coaches in in the world are, are always trying to find a way to, to better their craft, whether it's new ideas from a hockey standpoint. Um, I know a lot of coaches now that are, are um, you know, reading up on and doing a lot of research on just education and teaching so they can better communicate with their players and stuff like that. Because, you know, when you're coaching hockey, it's not just 
teaching X's and O's. It's about motivation and inspiration and getting people on the same page and, um, and how you communicate. So, um, yeah, I think it's such a cool idea and, uh, glad that we were able to, to have you on the podcast to, uh, to talk about it, but also glad to have you on the podcast to, to talk about your journey, man. I mean, three Stanley cups, um, you have a wealth of teammates that, that spoke the world of you, uh, and still continue to do so. And, uh, you know, you don't win three Stanley cups without having, uh, an, an awesome attitude and, and just being a great teammate. So we appreciate you coming on and, and talking about your journey and, and enlightening all of our listeners and Jeff and I as well. And, uh, we wish you nothing but the best of luck moving forward with your career and, uh, hope to speak to you again at some point, uh, soon. Love talking some shop with you for sure. Good stuff, guys. Thanks for having me. I'll talk hockey all day long. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's been fun, and I appreciate you having me on. All right, man. Have a good one. Take care. All right, see you.